What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and thank you for joining us. I'm really happy that I can put this episode out into the world. To me, the, the conversation that I had with our guest this week and the ability to deliver this to so many around the world is just a reminder of why John and I do this and why I continue to search for things and topics and people that are going to change the way I think. You know, I believe in our lives we have inflection points and we never know when they're going to happen and they're not always things we wanted, but they change us. And I can imagine this episode and, and reading this book being one of those inflection points for me and, and perhaps for you. Now, I will say this episode's a little deep, but what's the point of spending an hour listening to something if you don't get deep, if you don't change the way you think about something or at least be willing to approach it from somewhere else? This week, we're talking about living through the lens of dying. And our guest this week contends that we cannot be truly alive without maintaining an awareness of death. This week, we're interviewing Frank Ostaseski, and we're discussing, amongst a few things, his new book, The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. And again, I reiterate, it's not so much about death, Although, yes, it is about that. It's, it's about how to use the understanding of death, the experience of death, to live the way we want. And I really can't think of a better person to 
walk us down this path to shed some light on this than Frank. Frank is the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project. He's founder of the Meta Institute. He's a Buddhist teacher, an international lecturer, and a leading voice in contemplative end-of-life care. He's been honored by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and AARP named him one of America's 50 most innovative people. And what all this means is Frank has basically dedicated his life to helping people die and helping people process death. And he's done this with thousands of people. He's been there at their bedside in the last minutes of their life. And he takes this Zen approach, although he does it without forcing any type of dogma. And in this episode, we we try to tap into a little bit of what he's learned in a lifetime of this, as well as what he reveals in his book, The Five Invitations. You can learn more about Frank and his book, along with additional resources at fiveinvitations.com. That's the word five, F-I-V-E, invitations.com. And the website really has some incredible resources on how to live life more fully, how to be a mindful healthcare professional, how to be a compassionate companion. And one that hits home for many people is if you're facing loss or living with illness, some resources for that. So I'm really honored to be able to bring this conversation with Frank to you. I hope it can meet you where you are and perhaps add to the richness of your life. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can go there for show notes, sign up for the newsletter, and stay in touch with us. I'd love to hear from you, hear your thoughts. Also, if you want to share your thoughts on iTunes, and really share the episode if you enjoy it. Put it on social, share it with friends, change someone's life. You never know. All right, here it is, our interview with Frank Ostaseski as we discuss the five invitations, discovering what death can teach us about living fully. Enjoy. Well, Frank, first, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for this book that we are going to go into. It has already impacted the way I think. So thanks all around. Well, you're welcome, Chris. I'm really happy to be with you and to also have the listeners um, enjoy our conversation. Yes. And I have a feeling we're going to take them on quite a journey today. (laughs) And, And I want to start here before we get into anything else. We're talking about death, but we're really talking about, in my opinion, life and living and your book, The Five Invitations. And right in the beginning, you taught, you say basically that this book is an invitation, five, as a matter of fact, to sit down with death and to have a cup of tea with her, to let her guide you toward living a more meaningful and loving life. And I just want to read that to you and, and get your response. Where did that line come from and why do you believe it to be true? Well, I mean... Partly it comes out of my own direct experience, you know, but also it comes out of my experience of being with a couple thousand people as they died. You know, you start to see what are the patterns, what matters most, you know. And I think without a reminder of death, we, we take life for granted, you know, and we get lost in our self-gratification and, and um, we forget what's really essential. You know, when we keep death close at hand, you know, at our fingertips in a way. We get it. We understand that life is absolutely precarious. And because it is, it's also precious. And then we don't want to waste a moment. Then we want to jump into our life with both feet, you know, live it fully and, um, you know, not miss a moment of it. Yeah. I wrote down one time, death is the only thing that is permanent. 
And therefore, it is also the only thing that we really don't know when or how it's going to impact us. And I think that's a purposeful part of life is to know that the one thing that's guaranteed, you don't know when it's going to happen. And that is how it can be a guide. You know, that's how I think of it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, it's, it's uncertain, right? The time of our dying is uncertain. How we die is uncertain. Um, and, you know, we all like to know, right? We like to be in charge. But death kind of cuts through that, uh, that fantasy, you know, that we are in charge of everything. Um, when we step into uncertainty, when we start to get it that our, you know, life and the nature of, of the reality is not so different, then the fact that things are not fixed or solid, this becomes a kind of liberating opportunity rather than a threat, you know? We, we, we step in more gracefully. It, it lends a kind of power to our life, actually. Um, you know, this spring um, in Japan, the hillsides were covered with um, beautiful flowers, right? Beautiful, beautiful cherry blossoms. There's a place I teach up in Idaho where there are these blue flax flowers that last just for a day, one day. Now, why is it that those cherry blossoms or those flax flowers are so beautiful? I think it's in part because of the brevity of their lives. They show us the beauty. The fact that things are always changing is part of what shows us how beautiful this life is. Yeah, That's what really, you know, if, if that's what causes us to really want to embrace it and live it fully. You know, this idea of impermanence is something I think of a lot. I mean, one of the simplest examples off the top of my head, but it comes up for me, is I love playing golf. And I love getting out there and being in the flow with a sport and all the green. And sometimes I'll think that the fact that this round is going to end... <laughs> Okay, I know this is a different different topic here, but the fact that this round is going to end and this time is going to go away and eventually it's going to go be Monday and we all have to go back to work is what makes it so special. I kind of know that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I want it to end. If I could have it be eight hours or four days or a week, I would. And so I always question that balance of knowing the finite nature is what makes it special, but still not wanting it to be the case. Yeah, both end, both end, I think, you know, like absolutely it's part of what gives life its, you know, excitement, right? But it's also part of what scares us, right? That's the fact that things are uncertain or the death will come scares us. Um, and so it's understandable that when we start to step into the beauty of this life, you know, like, or into the enjoyment of even a golf game, we don't want it to end. We want it to keep going. Now, at the same time, we also rely on impermanence. We rely on constant change. You know, that really boring dinner party that you're going to go to on Saturday night is going to come to an end, you know. Um, evil dictatorships are going to fall, you know, replaced by thriving democracies, we hope, yeah. Um, everything is coming and going all the time. And the difficulty we have with life is when we resist that truth, you know, when we, we try to pretend that it's not the case. Yeah, that's when we really cause ourselves some degree of pain and, and, and discomfort. One thing I, I also wanted to mention here is, you know, I, I just got done uh, not too long ago, actually reading this book. And, and I spent the vast majority of today reading it. And it left me in this place of uh, discomfort to some extent. And I wondered what that said about me. I mean, I really... I could not help but to keep reading. I love this topic 
but I hate the idea of it, you know, because I'll picture things and I, this happens a lot more as I age. I have a son now, you know, my parents are getting older. They're not old, but they're getting older where you start to realize what could happen. And this book really brought that to the forefront and put me on edge. How do you feel about that reaction? <laughs> well, uh, first thing is I hope you keep reading and get to the end <laughs> of the book. You know? um, I think that it's natural for this to happen, you know, because most of the time we keep death at arm's length, you know, we try and keep it out of the picture, so to speak. And so when we invite it in, as you did when you started reading the book, it starts to challenge our mm, habitual way of going through the world. And so I think that that's part of what's happening is we're confronting something that's been there all along, a certain kind of apprehension or mm, underground river of anxiety, you know, that's been there all along about the subject that we've avoided. And so now we're saying, Let, let's bring it into the light of day. Let's see what it has to show us. And at first, we're going to feel uncomfortable. As we stay with it, we begin to understand that this is an, there's incredible wisdom in, in that death has to teach us about living our lives and that we don't want to miss that information. You know, everything we have done, everything we have done matters at the time of our dying. And so the question that's sort of starting to arise for me is, if the habits of our life have a kind of momentum that carry through into the time of our dying, what habits do we want to create? You know, do we want to create habits of avoidance and denial? Or do we want to create habits of learning to turn toward, to face fully what it is that scares us? You go through that a little bit in the beginning, that idea of changing habits, changing outcomes and character to have a better, and this is my words, but this feeling about our death. And I put myself in that situation, whenever it may be, if I have the luxury of contemplating my life before my death, wondering how much of that will I actually care about, right? And, and here's the reason I struggle. If everything is impermanent and I'm dying and I know that in a short period of time at that juncture, I will no longer be here, why do my previous actions even matter if I'm going to be gone and no longer aware of them? Hmm. Well, they matter now, you know, hmm. I mean, dying is inevitable and intimate, you know, and I've seen really ordinary people go to their dying and develop really profound understandings through this powerful process of transformation that dying is right. They become something, they become more of themselves. They become something bigger and larger than the small personality they took themselves to be. And this regularly occurs for people. Now, we might say that's too late. And I would agree, you know, let's not wait until the time of our dying to make that discovery. Let's figure out and understand something about who we are now so that we can um, fully engage in our life. Yeah. So it's not so much about what you leave behind, although legacy is important for a lot of people. It's more like how fully, how completely have I lived my life? Yeah. And I think that death gives us that mirror to look in that helps us to really get it. You know, this is important. This life right here, right now, this is what's most important, you know? And, um, I don't want to miss a moment of it. You know, uh, you know, you were saying about you have a young child and you want to be there, right? You really want to be there. You don't want to miss any of it. Yeah. So I think that the specter of death or the specter of constant change causes us to really see that I love this life. I love this life. Yeah. 
and we don't have to wait until the time of our dying to learn the lessons that it has to teach. If you could describe for us somebody who, upon dying or as they're approaching death, feels that they've done it right, feels that, you know what, I wouldn't change things. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with where I am. You know, I think that goal that many of us had, a life well lived, that versus those that feel the opposite, okay? Uh, full of regret, uh, wishing, you know, upon wishing that they could do it over again. If you've seen those, um, could you tell us the, the differences or the biggest difference, perhaps? You know, because this is the closest some of us will get to understanding this truth, is talking to you about it, having witnessed so many and been such a, a part of it and a thinker around this. Um, if we could almost game the system a little bit, in a, in a weird way of putting it, uh, and and learn from that, what would you say it is? Well, I think there's a lot of conversation out there about what are the primary regrets that people have as they die. And that's a useful conversation. But, you know, what, what I think what we imagine is we get that list, we won't do those things. And so then life and death will go very smoothly. I'm more interested in, well, what did people discover in the time of their dying? that's really valuable. Like, like there was a guy I worked with, he, he lived on the streets of San Francisco and I met him in a psychiatric unit at the, um, at the county hospital. And he was in the psychiatric unit because he had terminal lung cancer and he couldn't imagine that there was any value to his life. And so he tried to kill himself. That's what wound him up in the psychiatric unit. So I went into the psychiatric unit and they, and they can be very sort of stark places. And I sat in this metal chair and he was turned toward the wall, this kind of hospital green wall. And I just sat there for a long time. And after a while, you know, he turned over, looked over his shoulder at me, and he said, who are you? Nobody's ever sat with me this long in silence. And I told him who I was and that I was from the hospice. And I asked him a really simple question. I said, what do you want? And he said, spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, uh, well, we make really good spaghetti. Why don't you come live with us? And he said, okay. And that was the end of the admissions interview. Now, the next day he arrived at our hospice from a psychiatric unit. And we had a big bowl of spaghetti waiting for him because you understand spaghetti meant home and nurturance and familiarity. Now, he, did, he didn't stop wanting to kill himself just because he, we gave him spaghetti. I mean, it was good spaghetti, but it wasn't that good. <laughs> so we, he and I developed a really honest relationship. And he didn't, you know, he, he wanted to really continue to explore taking his life. And this was long before the, you know, the five states in our country that have allowed physician-assisted dying. And so there was a book at the time that told you how to take your life if you were dying. And, and I got him this book and, and we read a chapter of it each night, you know, each night we read a chapter. In the end, he didn't actually take his life. Uh, in fact, the day before he died, he said, Frank, I want to thank you. I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. And I said, how is that possible? I said, just a few weeks ago, you wanted to kill yourself because you couldn't write in your journals or walk in the park. He said, oh, that, that was just chasing desire. I said, what do you mean? You mean these activities aren't important to you anymore? He said, no, it's not the activities that bring me joy. It's the attention to the activities. He said, now my pleasure comes from the coolness of the breeze and the softness of the sheets. Now, I thought this was a remarkable turnaround for a guy I met in a psychiatric unit. What he merely began to understand was how by bringing our attention fully and completely to whatever we're doing, that's where we really find our contentment, you know, and that's where we find our happiness. And so it wasn't about reviewing his life and saying, gee, I wish I hadn't done that or I wish I'd done more of that. It was more like what I learned here at the time of my dying is how to pay attention, how to really pay attention. Yeah. 
And it doesn't even matter so much what I'm paying attention to. It's the quality of the attention that brings me into a state of contentment and, and relaxation. That's a powerful story. It reminds me of this thought, this conversation I, I recently had about trying to be present, right? So mindfulness is getting so much attention these days, and I think many times rightfully so in, in certain instances and areas. And what I have found is I try to be so mindful of the moment that I become aware of my want to be in the moment, right? <laughs> yeah. And th that takes me out of it, right? And, and so an example is, as we mentioned, you know, playing with my son, and I'll be just so happy for the time that I get. And then to, to be aware that that moment is going to go away, right? And so I wonder, given, because I know you do talk a lot about Buddhist philosophy and Zen and things like that, what has death taught us about the willingness to, to A, be in that moment and be okay with the fact that it's going to end? In the same way, our lives are going to end. Right, exactly. That's just it. That's the nature of things again, you know. I mean, mindfulness, as you suggest, you know, it's the kind of the new black, you know, it's, we think it's suitable for all occasions, you know. <laughs> and, um, and it is, as you suggest, it's really important, you know, for people to learn to be mindful, but it's, it's not just a life hack, you know. Mindfulness is a kind of deconditioning, really. It, it cultivates uh, a kind, merciful, awake presence in the mind that no longer blocks the heart, really. And so then we're free to see things as they are, you know, and we allow the difficult and the dark and the dense to show itself. And we become more intimate with our pain and our difficulties, but also with the joy and the beauty of life, you know, what, it, what it's like to embody our full humanity and, and to discover an even deeper sense of who we are. So, you know, the pain doesn't come from the fact that it ends, that your time with your son and that playtime ends. It comes from the fact that you don't want it to end. <laughs> and you and you cling to the fact that you don't want it to end, you know, and it should be otherwise. You know, it's like arguing with reality. It makes us crazy. And, um, and we always lose when we argue with reality. Yeah? So rather when we attune ourselves, when we live in some kind of harmony with the way things are, it's not just um, resignation. It's true acceptance. It's a true allowing. Okay, so now this is really changing. What can it show me? What can it show me about you know, um, how to live my life with some degree of ease and, uh, and an absence of worry and anxiety. So yeah. ac acceptance in the fact that it's going to end, whatever it may be, can free you to experience it for what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about it, you know, when you have, uh, when you have, when you eat an ice cream and it tastes really yummy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if at the end of eating the ice cream, you say, I want more, you never, you don't really, you forget about the enjoyment that you just had, right? You're, you're sort of caught in a kind of cycle of, I got to get more, I got to get more all the time. And that creates a certain kind of anxiety and um, not so wholesome drive in us. It has us always reaching for something outside ourselves for happiness. One th other thing that I want to check with you on is, and again, this might just be but that it's personal, but we recently did a podcast on loneliness um, with a person named Guy Winch, and um, it, it struck a chord to many. So I think this will do the same. But to me, as I look at it now, death is the ultimate loneliness. 
And I hope my opinions and feelings on that change because I don't want to be the one that gets to my deathbed just worried about what is to come. Um, and, and I hate that idea, right, of when you die being lonely, right, being completely and utterly separate. And, and that is how I'm currently viewing death. How do you view the relationship between death and loneliness? Hmm. That's a great question, Chris. That's a really great question. And probably not one that we can, you know, answer in bulleted points, right. you know, because, right. we, we, you know, we have to really live into that to really understand. We have to see the sort, you know, what are my beliefs about this? What are my beliefs and views about what happens when we die from, you know, the actual experience? You know, just coming back for a second, I just want to say acceptance is not resignation. Acceptance is an opening to possibility, you know, um, and this openness is, is the basis for a skillful response to life. So what happens after we die? I don't know exactly. I don't know. I mean, I've been around thousands of people now. And one of the questions that I always ask them is, what do you think is going to happen after you die? You know, and it's not like I think there's a right answer to this, but I think that the way in which people respond to that question shapes the way in which they die and perhaps even the way in which they live their lives. Like there was a guy I worked with. He was the president of the California Atheist Association, you know, and he came to us at Zen Hospice to die. And I was very proud of that. I I was (laughs) glad he thought we we weren't going to push any dogma on him. I'm not interested in dogma. I'm, I'm curious. So I asked him a question, but I asked everybody, you know, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And he said, nothing. I said, what do you mean nothing? Like, you know, will you have a nose? Will you have ears? No, you don't have a nose and ears. And I said, well, what do you mean nothing? I said, is it like a dial tone? You know, mm-hmm. and he said, no, it's not like a dial tone. He said, it's like mm, the mo- all the molecules that you are go out and merge with all the other molecules in the universe. It's, that was his notion. I said, oh, what? He, he's going to be OK. You know, <laughs> you know. There was another guy I worked with. He was a 30-year heroin user, African-American man. 30 years he used heroin, right? Really came off the streets to our hospice. And I said the same thing to him. I said, you know, I said, Jackie, here you are at this uh, Buddhist hospice. I said, do you think you're going to get born again? He said, yep. And I said, well, what are you going to come back as? You know, you're going to come back as a king or a queen or, you know, in some cultures you could come back as a cow. You know, that, that's really sacred. And then he said, I'm not coming back as no goddamn cow. And I said, well, what are you coming back at? And he said, Jackie. I said, Jackie, why do you want to be Jackie for? He said, because next time I'm going to get it right. And you see, we were into a whole different conversation now, Chris, you know. Mm. We were really in a conversation where we were talking about his this very life, you know, the one he's in the middle of, you know. So, again, I think that when we reflect on this, it shows us how we're thinking about this life. So when we have an idea that death is only loneliness and separation, you know, it's, it behooves us to take a look at our life and see where are we separating? Where are we pulling ourselves apart from other people? You know, why do we think we need to separate in order to be unique, you know, and to be differentiated? I mean, we live in this world that's incredibly diverse, right? Unbelievably diverse, but it's not fundamentally separate. Yeah. You know? I was just in Hawaii with my friends who are big wave surfers, you know, and, you know, they try and teach me about the waves. And, and I don't always understand everything they're talking about, to be honest with you. But what I see is that each wave is absolutely unique and beautiful. And they all crash on the shore and they all get sucked back out to the ocean, you know. And um, the fact that they crash on the shore doesn't cause me to not enjoy them when they're taking form and shape in all their beauty and power. So um, they're not, you know, I think we're like that. I don't think that we're fundamentally separate. I think that we are unique, beautiful individuals. 
And I love that about this life, yeah? And I love that reality takes shape through all of us in really different ways. And that's part of the, that's part of the beauty that dying reveals to us. Hmm. And it's, it's funny that you ended that with that's what's unique about what dying reveals to us because I just had a, a quick note that I wrote down as you were talking that it sounds like you sometimes might view death as a mirror that when we look at it, we can see what it is about our current state that is either bothering us or perhaps that we are content with. And so first of all, I don't want to put that as your words. I'm wondering what about that do you agree or disagree with and how we can use that mirror right now where we all are listening. Yeah, good for you. That's a great question. And, and you know, I mean, for me, the eyes of a dying patient are the clearest mirrors that I've ever looked into. Wow. And they show, you know, they, they just are, you know, they, they show me myself. They show me where I'm holding, where I'm trying to exercise more control, where I need to be more flexible. Um, they show me the, you know, aversions that I have in life, you know, but they also show me my beauty and they also show me my capacity for compassion. And they also show me my capacity to love, right? So mirrors reflect back what they see, what, you know, what's, they, they reflect back the truth of what's actually there. That's what mirrors do, right? And so, you know, death is such a mirror. It shows us how we're actually living our life and it doesn't pull punches, you know? It says, this is how it is. This is how you are right now, right here, right now. And um, that's why, you know, I mean, you know, when, when Steve Jobs was dying, right, he said, you know, the best life hack, death is the best life hack that you've never used. Yeah. And because remembering that we're going to be dead soon <laughs> is the most important tool that helps us to really see, make choices in our life, set priorities. Again, to acknowledge what's really important. Yeah. I mean, if you knew that this was the last week of your life. How would you want to spend time with your son? Yeah. I mean, what might you do differently? You know, what would you give up? What would you move toward? Yeah. So I think it has that kind of sobering, you know, clarifying, um, like a sword of discrimination, you know, that really cuts through all the crap and shows us, you know, um, where we should be placing our attention. One thing that this idea brings up for me is you ask, if I had a week left, how would I spend that time with my son, et cetera? And sometimes I think, well, I, I tell you what I wouldn't do, right? I wouldn't go on this work trip I have to go on. Not because I dislike the work, but because of the squeezing in of relationships and whatnot. How can we balance that? You know, balance the idea of, okay, death is coming for us. Are we spending our time in the best possible way as we see fit? versus necessity and the fact that, well, it might not be tomorrow, right? So I can't take all my savings, go buy that sports car, drive it 100 miles an hour, et cetera, um, because that would be irresponsible. How do we balance that? Yeah, I mean, it's great because, you know, one, I think what happens is, again, in the sobering quality that that, that brings forward to us. And, and again, I don't think it's, I don't think this is morbid at all. I think this is life affirming actually, to include a reflection on death. I think when we do, we, we um, um, greet life with much more curiosity. 
So in the case that you just described or the situation you just described, you know, you, you have to go on that business trip, right? That's part of the deal. Yeah. So, but you can, you also can turn to your son and say, you know, I got to go away on this business trip, but the thing that's most important to me in my life is you, you know? And so even when I'm on this business trip and I'm away from you, I'm going to have you in my heart, you know, I'm going to be carrying with you with me everywhere I go, you know, because that, that's really, that's what really matters to me. I think that's how we do it. It's not like it's either or we pick black or white, but rather we, it starts to be included and shapes the way in which we conduct our relationships. Yeah. One of the themes in your book and, and in this thought is it's, you still talk a lot about our relationship to other people. And I find that interesting because, um, given that death essentially represents your inability to have physical relationships with other people, you still use it as a magnifying glass to what your current relationships are. So I know you talk about it in terms of looking back on how your actions um, impacted others and affected others. Is that a, a theme that you found through your work is that the way we impact and affect others with our lives is one of the things we deem most important at our deaths? Yeah, absolutely. I think when people look back on their lives as they're dying, they naturally reflect about what was the influence of their life um, on the world, in their relationships, etc. So it's reasonable for people to want to do that. And sometimes when we look back, we tend to look back critically. You know, we tend to look back and, you know, judge ourselves or judge our actions. And I think it's important there when we're with someone in that situation to really emphasize the positive, not in some Pollyanna way, but to really help people remember um, the powerful and loving effect that they've had on others. But I think that one of the mistakes we make is that we start thinking about death as this point at the end of a long road, and then we look back over our lives, as opposed to saying, death is there now. How do I want to live this life? In other words, how do I use this to show to live this life with um, veracity and integrity? You know, how do I... Uh, step in with tremendous wonder and curiosity and awe into this life, you know? That's what interests me more. Not looking back, but actually looking forward. Mm. And, you know, finding a way finding a way of being quite present in the situation, whatever situation we find ourselves in. You know? Um, so that's why I gave that example of, you know, imagine you had only a week to live. Then, wow, wouldn't this week be really alive? Mm. Yeah. Wouldn't it be so full? I mean, I don't know what happens after we die. Maybe we have multiple lifetimes. Maybe nothing happens, you know. Here's the question. Imagine there were multiple lifetimes, right? Well, then how would you want to live this life? Well, you might say, well, I want to live this life with integrity, with love, with, you know, clarity, wisdom, so that I would set up the conditions for another great life. Uh, You know, let's imagine that's the case. I'd say, okay, great. Now, imagine that there's nothing that happens after you die. Imagine it's just a dial tone. Well, then how would you want to live? Oh, I want to live this life with integrity, with clarity, with as much love as possible because it's the only chance I got. Yeah. Mm. So it, in a way, it's not so much so important to be able to answer that question about what happens. It's more like what, what does the reflection, how does the reflection cause you to live your life here and now? This week's episode is brought to you by Be Frugal. If you're an online shopper, you have to try Be Frugal Cash Back. It's like free money. Be Frugal lets you earn up to 40% cash back on your purchases from over 5,000 stores 
including Amazon, Walmart, Target, Macy's, and more. It's like getting paid to shop. Simply find the online store where you want to shop, click the link on befrugal.com to activate cash back, and complete your purchase. You can even stack your coupons and cash back to get the best deal possible. Then money will report in your BeFrugal account within a few days and become payable within 30 to 90 days. Members can request money via check, PayPal, or Amazon gift card. Plus, if you have any questions, members also have access to helpful customer support from BeFrugal's team of U.S.-based specialists. You're already shopping online. Why not get paid for it? It's so easy, you'll never shop online without BeFrugal again. So listen up. This is what you need to do. Visit BeFrugal.com smart and get a $10 bonus when you join for free. That's BeFrugal.com smart. And now back to the episode. Well, and I think at this point, people hopefully are thinking, you're right. You know, I want to look at this more deeply, which is where your book comes in. And I, I want to talk about that. I also want to give our listeners a chance to learn a little bit more about you and especially what you do at the Zen Hospice Project. But before we do that, this is something that just jumped out to me. I'm wondering, how do you currently view death given your experience with it? Having seen people die, having seen the sadness, I think, that often accompanies it and the families that are impacted by it. How do you see death? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm not romantic about dying. Uh, it's really hard work, toughest work we may do, ever do in our whole lives, you know, and it doesn't always turn out well. I mean, it can be sad and cruel and awful, and, but it also can be beautiful and mysterious and, and full of transformation and growth. But, you know, most of all, after being with thousands of people, I think it's normal. <laughs> I think we all go through it. I think none of us get out of here alive. In that way, it's ordinary in a way. Um, and so I think of death as the secret teacher that's hiding in plain sight. You know, death isn't something that just happens to us at the end of a long road. It's in the marrow of every moment. It's right here, right now, all the time. And so uh, I have a much more familiar, I want to say, or personal relationship with death. Um, and, not, and, and don't think of it just as the something that comes at the end of a long life. You know, it's right here, right now. It's, it can happen today, you know. And it's, and it's not just about our life ending. This moment ended. You know, like we could take, we could pull the word death out of our conversation and just talk about endings and talk about how do we meet endings, you know? How do you meet the end of a sentence, the end of a meal, you know, the end of a lovemaking, the end of a day, yeah? How do you meet endings? And I think if we learn something about that, it shows us that, first of all, the way we meet an ending tends to uh, shape the way the next beginning occurs, right? And so it causes us to live our life with more attention, more mindfulness, more consciousness. Um, you know, how do you leave a party? You know, do you just ghost out when everybody, you know, when it's time to go? <laughs> You know, or do you say goodbye to people? Do you say thank you? And I was just in Italy teaching over there. And, you know, in, in an Italian uh, culture, you don't have a dinner party where you don't say goodbye to everybody who was there and thank them and say something particular to them was specific about your interactions with them. So I think the way we meet endings in our life really matters. And um, that those are the little deaths, if you will, that happen 
all the time. I really like that. And I like that example about leaving a party because I've had numerous conversations about that and the, the old Irish goodbye and just, (laughs) well, I'll see you later. And it seems slightly harmless, but, um, if it does impact, like you talk about, if it becomes a habit, if that's how all endings are treated with uh, carelessness, perhaps, then it might be indicative of something else. Frank, I want to, I want to learn a little bit more about you. How, how did you get to studying this subject, which is so pushed to the back burner? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, like I said earlier, we want to keep it at arm's length, you know, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to see it, you know? I mean, now I think that that's changing. I think people are having much more honest conversations like the one that we're having mm-hmm. about it, you know, where it's kind of out of the closet, you know, and we can start to talk about it in a real and useful way. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, I got to be familiar with death really early on. You know, my mom died when I was a teenager and my dad just a few years later. So death and I were early companions, you know, um, and it, you know, f- propelled me into my life very quickly, you know, as a young man. Um, I worked in refugee camps where I saw a lot of horrible dying in southern Mexico and uh, Central America. And I was, I thought there's got to be something else that we can do about this. When my son was being born, you know, I went and studied with the master. Her name was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was the pioneer in, in death and dying. And, um, and she sort of took me under her wing and invited me back to, uh, to shadow her and learn from her, you know. Um, and then the AIDS epidemic hit in San Francisco and, you know, we had 30,000 people die of AIDS in San Francisco in the eighties, eighties, nineties. And none of us knew what we were doing. We were sort of making it up as we went along. I mean, 30,000 people in one city. Can you imagine, you know, it was like a unbelievable epidemic. And, um, you know, I was with people sometimes 20 or 30 people in a week that died. Yeah. And so death and I got really uh, up close and personal, yeah. And uh, what I noticed in my life is that I started feeling more alive, actually. (laughs) I wasn't depressed. I didn't burn out. I started feeling more alive. Um, I started to really um, be more conscious about the ways in which I lived my life and how um, I interacted with others. You know, I don't have any degrees. I, I, I didn't graduate from, from college because I had to support my family. I have a younger brother, et cetera. And so the only, you know, certificate or, or, or <laughs> I have is a Red Cross life-saving certificate I got when I was 16 years old. And I'm sure it's, sure it's probably expired by now, but that's the only degree I have. So people who were dying taught me, yeah. You know, in the middle of the AIDS epidemic, when we didn't know what to do, I worked as a aide between midnight and eight in the morning, the graveyard hours, you know, where I was with people in the most intimate, the most vulnerable moments of their life, you know. And if I was going to be helpful to them, I had to be real, you know, I had to be really clear about my relationships to illness and to dying, you know. And I couldn't use any rhetoric, you know, they would smell out, sniff out rather my sentimentality and my insincerity and they'd yell bullshit, you know. So death has caused me to be real with people, yeah? to be honest, to be completely myself. Yeah? That's been its really great teaching to me. 
to not live under the illusion I have endless time, to be real in my relationships with people, and to be endlessly curious, endlessly curious. Because no, you know, dying is like getting born, you know. Each experience is completely unique. We never know how it's going to turn out exactly, you know. And there, when the veils are really thin between the worlds, we see what really matters most, you know. And often it's, you know, our simple human kindness, our ability to be present for one another. And so that's really become what's most essential in my life. (laughs) That's a long answer to it. No, no. It's it's fantastic to learn and and see how that happened. And and I know some of your experiences and they're outlined in your book. Tell us a little bit, how'd you get to the the Zen Hospice Project? Well, the Zen Hospice Project, we started it in the mid-80s, right? And uh, in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. And uh, I had worked in a couple of other hospices before, and um, my whole life had really been about service up until then. But what we were trying to do was put together people who were cultivating what we might call the listening mind or the listening heart through meditation practice or mindfulness practice and put them together with people who really needed to be heard, folks who were dying. They needed to be heard at least once in their life. And so it was um, a kind of fusion of spiritual insight and very practical social action. We worked, for the most part, in the beginning with people living on the streets of San Francisco. So I changed diapers on park benches behind City Hall and taught prostitutes how to care for their johns and desk clerks in single-room occupancy hotels how to care for the residents in those buildings. Wow. And so... You know, it was very close to the ground, really close to the ground. And um, and we didn't know. We didn't really know what we were doing. We were making it up as we went along, you know. But there was nobody else doing it. So we just stepped in to fill that gap, you know, and uh, that vacuum. And the people who were dying showed us. You know, they showed us what was most important. They showed us how to do it. They showed us what they needed most. And um, And our job was to really accompany them and companion them as opposed to guide them, really. Um, I don't know how people should die. Everybody dies differently. My job is to figure out how does this person need to go through this process and how can I support them as they go through that process in the way that best suits them. Have you seen any commonalities at the end, really, with people in how they either think or how they want to be treated given your experience? Because I know that was triggered by, you mentioned so many things you know, everybody dies differently, but have you noticed anything that actually ties them all together? Yeah. I mean, I think there are patterns that as human beings we experience, you know, that are common, they commonly show up rather in the time of dying. And then of course, as I just suggested, there's this really unique way in which people go through it, you know, based on their own conditioning, et cetera. So, um, I think generally speaking, um, in most cultures, people's outer circles start to shrink. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's what happen, what's happening is if you think of concentric circles, they're withdrawing from the outer circles of their life. So maybe they pull back from some of their work relationships or some of their community relationships, and they pull into a much more intimate circle of people. That's one of the things that happens, I think. I think another thing is that all of the ways that we've defined ourselves, you know, I'm a Buddhist teacher, you're a podcaster, you know, we're all the different ways that we define ourselves, these are stripped away by illness or gracefully given up. And then we find something much more fundamental in ourselves, something more more of a common ground with one another. I think that happens an awful lot when people are dying. Um, I think when, they, when, I, when I boil it down, 
two questions become really important to people as they're dying. And they don't always shape them or speak them in this particular way, but in one fashion or another, they ask the question, am I loved? Does somebody love me? And did I love well, you know, in this life? Did I love well in this life? And sometimes the answers to those things are no, you know. Uh, and, and sometimes that's that becomes the really important work of the final weeks, months, days of their lives, you know, to learn how to love and how to receive love. You know? I'd say that's a really common, the most common human experience that I see near the end of life. Well, also, I mean, you know, we got to be real here, too. Many people in our culture are dying in fear and regret, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're leaving skid marks, dragging their heels toward death, you know. And I think we can do something about that. I mean, I think it's because we're not having the kinds of conversations that you and I are having now that people are death is the great, you know, um, boogeyman, you know, that great taboo. And so the more familiar we get with it, the more we kind of include it in our lives, um, I think that's the way we diminish that fear and, and that regret. Mm. When you mentioned the commonality of am I loved and did I love well, I mean, the fact that at the end of it all, when you're staring down the end of your existence as you know it, the question is love at the core of it all. Have you ever thought about why that is or what is it about love? It's not about anything other than that one emotion. Why is that? I mean, I'm (laughs) formulating this as I go. And so maybe we can't even get to it here, but I'm just wondering your thoughts. Well, I think it takes us back to what you were saying about your own fears about dying, that it's a lonely, uh, Mm. it's a process of loneliness and causes a great deal of separation. I think fundamentally we belong to one another, you know, and some part of us, deep intuitive part of us understands this, you know, we understand that we're in this soup together, you know, and, um, so that's part of it is the deep sense and the deep need to belong. You know, it means that it's one of our instinctual drives, the social drive. It's not just to go to parties. It's that I have a sense of belonging. Right. So that's the first thing I think that really is there. That's fundamental to our very nature. You know, I think also that this love that we speak of here, it's not just the emotional, the emotional experience, not just the romantic experience of love that we could think about it as something that's woven into the very fabric of our life, you know, that's inseparable. It's like wetness to water, you know, love is, is that central and that integral to every dimension of our life, you know? I mean, if you, again, I'm going to ask you that question. If you think about what is it that really has the most value for you now, right? Not just at the time of dying, but now, inevitably, you're going to speak about your relationships. You're going to talk about your child, you know? And so if that's important now, well, it's like, if that's the most important thing now, it's because it's the most important thing then. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. And again, that's the really good news here. We don't have to wait until the time of our dying to learn what it has to teach. You know, I, again, I think that the value here is use death as a mirror. Use death to show you how to live your life here and now. Absolutely. Well, with with that, I want to I do want to get into this book, which really we're having a conversation about. I mean, this whole conversation has been about it. But to get specific, you know, it's called The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. And it embraces a lot of what we've been talking about. Would you, though, first share with us why is it? And I know you cover this in the book, but I'd like to hear from you. Why do you call them invitations? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I've called them different things over the years. You know, I've talked about them as precepts or guidelines or these kind of things. But really, you know, I, I thought of them as invitations because, you know, when you get an invitation, it's it's a call, right? It's a call to be present for something, right? Come to this party, come to our wedding, right? It's a call to be present. And so these invitations are a call to be present for your life, you know? Um, so that's why I think of them as invitations. And by the way, they all came to me from people who were dying. They were all things that, those patterns that you were talking about a little while ago are these five invitations. What kind of boiled down to the essential truths that folks who were dying showed me. Would you mind giving us a brief overview of those five? And then I have some kind of pointed questions for those that are interested. Sure. And, you know, we'll, I'll just give you a really quick summary of them. Sure. But, so the first invitation is don't wait. Don't wait. You know, it's one of my favorite ones. And it's not about just getting all the toys you can get. Don't wait um, means don't wait uh, to tell someone that you love that you love them. You know, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive, we missed this one. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been with people who are dying and they've said to me, you know, when am I going to die or when is my mom going to die? And waiting for the moment of dying, we miss all the moments in between. So to imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the physical strength, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime is a ridiculous gamble. So let's not wait until the time of our dying to learn what it has to teach us. That's the first one, okay? Second one is a little bit more challenging. It's welcome everything, push away nothing. Welcome everything, push away nothing. Now, this really challenges us. You know, welcoming really challenges our whole sense of judgment. And people, people imagine that they have to, you know, reject things in order to be um, safe. So this welcoming isn't about agreeing with everything. It isn't about liking everything that comes. It's just a willingness to meet it. You know, it's at your doorstep. What can it show me? So the great writer James Baldwin, you know, African-American writer James Baldwin said, there are many things in life that we must face that we cannot change, but nothing can be changed unless we're willing to face it. Yeah. So to welcome everything and push away nothing is has that kind of integrity to it. The third one is bring your whole self to the experience, bring your whole self to the experience. Um, a lot of times we, you know, we all like to look good, right? We, um, we long to be seen as capable and strong and intelligent and all of that, you know, spiritual or whatever it is, well-adjusted at least, you know? And so we project this positive self-image onto the world and, and few of us want to be known for our helplessness or our fear or anger or ignorance, or that sometimes we're more of a mess than we like to admit. So to be whole means to include it all, to accept it all, to connect with all parts of ourself. And this wholeness is not about perfection. It means no part of ourself is left out. Yeah. That's to bring your whole self to the experience. The fourth one is find a place of rest in the middle of things. <laughs> now we're usually thinking we're gonna find rest later, you know, when we get our list checked off and when we go on a holiday. But I don't know about you, but my list never gets checked off. So if I wait until, you know, my list is all done or my email inbox is empty, you know, I'll never, I'll never rest. So I have to learn to find rest right in the middle of what I'm doing, yeah? And that, that place of rest isn't dependent upon the circumstances of our life. It's dependent upon the quality of attention that we bring forward. It's a choice, really, to be alert, to bring your attention to this moment. Okay, the fifth one and last one is called... 
cultivate don't know mind. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I, I felt it's kind of zenny, right? And I felt obliged to put something zen-like in this list. You know? <laughs> uh, but but the cultivate don't know mind seems confusing at first. You know, why would we want to cultivate being ignorant? You know, why would we seek to be ignorant? But you know, ignorance is not not knowing. Ignorance is that we know something, but we misperceive it. And then we insist on it being true. There's a lot of that going on in our world right now. We misunderstand things. Yeah. So don't know mind is a mind that's open, that's receptive. It doesn't throw out our learning. It's right there, in, you know, in, got it at our back, you know, to help us. But it's receptive. It's ready to meet whatever shows up. Yeah. It's an invitation to enter life with fresh eyes, to empty our minds and open our hearts. Yeah. It's a, it's a mind that's characterized by surprise, by awe by wonder, yeah? So that's the five invitations, right? Don't wait, welcome everything, push away nothing. Bring your whole self to the experience. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. And number five, cultivate, don't know mind. Yeah, so that's a very brief summary of, of the, uh, an overview of what the book's really about. As I mentioned, you know, I was going through them this morning and they all jump out for different reasons. I figured, you know, the the two that really struck me and some I struggle with, I might highlight to give people a, a deeper sense of what you discuss and how you go about discussing it in the book. But I really can't recommend it enough. I mean, it was a really uh, a, a deep, you know, four hours in which I got through a lot of it, not the entire thing, but a lot of it. And we'll probably go sit on my porch after this and finish it. Um, the, the first thing I, I want to ask is something you highlighted, which was in number two, that welcome everything, push away nothing. And I do feel like that was the most challenging. And, you know, it, it actually brought something up for me. Uh, I recently dealt with, kind of will probably forever deal with something that was life-changing and, uh, and difficult. And um, I remember talking to my dad about it. And I said, you know, he said, what what's the biggest problem? And I said... Well, it's it's just that I can't rationalize the fact that this happened and it is suboptimal, right? It is it is suboptimal. And that's the best words I could use. But in a little more clarity, I went and thought about it. And to some extent, that's such a ridiculous statement to get so worked up over something that is just below optimal. And it it it's what number two made me question was this idea of how do I welcome something that I really don't want? Like I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things in my life I really don't want, you know, <laughs> and, and I don't, um, I'm not suggesting that we should become doormats, you know, for other people's intrusions onto our life or that, you know, we become Pollyanna and everything's great. You know, what I'm suggesting is it's true. It's here, Right. You know, this suboptimal thing that you're describing, it's here. It's part of your life. So now, now what? You know, denying its existence and trying to push it away doesn't help me at all. It just pushes it underground, right? So I'm willing to meet it. I got it. Here it is. It's at my doorstep. Uh, and now I have some agency. I have some power, right? When I'm denying it, it's got all the power. It's got, you know, it's going to rule my life. So, you know, it's like it's your wedding day and it rains, right? 
well, it's not your fault right, that it rains, but here it is. So now how can we deal with this? You know, so we get out umbrellas and give them to all our guests that so we snuggle up together under a particular tent or an eve or something like that. We don't, we're not victim to our experiences when we're willing to welcome it and meet it. Yeah. And that's really the difference. It gives us some quality of agency. The other one that struck me, number four, find a place of rest in the middle of things. And I think that is such a great idea and the way you discuss it so necessary as things seemingly get crazier. You tell a story of a woman named Adele and she was essentially dying right in the in the midst of it. And the story was so powerful because it didn't change the outcome, but it changed her experience and, you know, the ease of which I guess that transition was made. So I'm wondering, you know, with stories like that, with your experiences like that, how do we find this rest in a world that is seemingly trying to get us to not rest? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're all going dancing as fast as we can, right? Trying to juggle as many plates as we can possibly manage and, you know, multitasking until we're exhausted. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the things that helps us is to actually slow down just for a moment, you know, even if it's not for taking a big break, just for a moment and let ourselves feel oftentimes just how exhausted we are from all this running around, you know, and begin to understand how invested we are in being exhausted. Yeah. I mean, when we tell people, when we ask people, when I ask people, how are you doing? They always say, oh, busy, man, really busy. Yeah. Or they tell me just how hard they're working or how exhausted they are. And sometimes they're saying that um, because they want someone to say back to them, oh, man, you're really dedicated. Oh, you're really doing a great job, you know. And so sometimes I think we in, we mm, unconsciously uh, invest in our exhaustion. <laughs> um, there's this really great phenomenon that happens sometimes for people when they've been diagnosed with cancer. And they talk about it with each other, but not so much publicly. And they talk about something which we might call a secret gratitude. A secret gratitude, like okay, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Now I can finally say no to all those things that I don't want to do, yeah? I can say no to that dinner party. I can say no to this particular kind of work, you know? And I can say yes to what really matters to me. That's a secret gratitude. Again, we don't need to get diagnosed with a life-threatening illness to make that choice. You know, Adele, when you were talking about, she was this rough, tough, you know, Russian Jewish lady, you know, and the night she was dying, I came to her room and, and uh, she was sitting on the edge of her bed, her feet sort of dangling off the edge of the bed. And I sat in the corner and the nurse's assistant was with her and very, in a very well-meaning way. She said to Adele, you know, you don't have to be scared. We're right here with you. And Adele, who is this tough cookie, you know, she shot back. Of course, I'm scared. And if this was happening to you, you'd be scared, too, you know, like that, you know. And uh, so I stayed in the corner. And uh, then this uh, very sweet, uh, you know, attendant, nurse's aide, said to her, Adele, would you like a blanket? You look a little cold. And she went to wrap the a shawl around her. And Adele said, of course I'm cold. I'm almost dead. Yeah. I mean, this woman was ferocious. <laughs> and, and so I saw two things there um, as I was sitting there. One is that she was struggling. She was struggling with her breath. You know, she was dying. She was actively dying. And there's a labor to dying, just like there's a labor to getting born, you know. And although we'd made all the correct interventions medically, still there's a labor to it. There's a struggle. So she was struggling, and the struggle was showing up in her breath. And the second thing was that she wanted 
honest relationship. She didn't want to talk about tunnels of light or any of this stuff. She just wanted somebody to be real with her. So I pulled up my chair, sat right in front of her, looked her in the eye, and I said, Adele, would you like to struggle a little bit less? And she said, yes. And so I said, okay, I noticed this gap there at the end of the exhale, just before the next inhale, when there's this little pause. What would it be like if you just put your attention there for a moment? And so I said, I'll do it with you, you know. Now, I didn't teach her to breathe in some particular way or do any kind of fancy stuff. I just was breathing with her. As she would breathe in, I would breathe in. As she would breathe out, I would breathe out. And I noticed that as she put her attention there in that little gap at the end of the exhale, the fear in her face just drained away, you know. And then after a few minutes, she said, I want to lay back on my pillow now. And she laid back down on her pillow. And a few minutes later, she died very peacefully. So I think what happened was that Adele found a place of rest in the middle of things. You see, all the conditions were still the same. She was still dying. There was still shortness of breath. Um, uh, none of those conditions had really changed, but she found a place of rest right in the middle of things. Yeah, We're always trying to manipulate the conditions of our life to get rest. And I think we can find it, and it's always available to us right here, right now. Yeah. You know, Frank, I, I know it's uh, we're we're getting to that time. We got to go, and I, I'm wondering if you could leave us with. We're gonna turn this podcast off. Those listening, wherever they are in their life and their world, uh, what and and to some, to many, myself included, I still have this unease, right? I, I I still have this anxiety about this whole topic that I don't know when or how or how long it will take to dissipate, and I hope it it changes me for the better, but. Um, if you could leave us with something to take this idea, to take the knowledge that we've gained today, of course, we're going to talk about your book one more time, but um, what would you like people to take away and do differently that might impact their life as opposed to just talking about the end? Yeah, great. That's a really great question. Thank, beautiful way to end. So uh, what I would say is learn to turn toward your experience. Learn to toward, turn toward what it is that frightens you, you know, like if you're having some restlessness or, you know, anxiousness about the subject, turn toward it, find out, get familiar with it, you know, learn what it has to show you. Um, you know, we're always trying to run away from our suffering and it smacks us in the back of the head, you know, takes us by surprise. So learn to turn toward your experience to become familiar with it. I think that's the most important thing. Um, and if we cultivate that habit all the time. You know, whatever it is, you know, some moment of frustration, some moment of, you know, anxiousness, then that gets to be a developed habit, a cultivated habit that becomes the way in which we meet the world. Yeah. Right. And we meet the world with more fearlessness, you know, with more curiosity, more willingness to discover. Yeah. So in my view, anyway, the contemplation of death and the inherent mystery of our life and, and that, that's part of that experience is too important to be left to the final hours of our life. Yeah? Coming to terms with our fears and discovering what dying has to teach us uh, are essential to, a, uh, to our transformation, to our lives having meaning and purpose. Uh, so don't go back to sleep. Yeah? Don't go back to sleep. I love it. Well, Frank, again, thank you so, so much for your time. Your insight is incredible. What you've learned and then sharing it with the world in things like this podcast and the Zen Hospice Project. And then, of course, this book. Which I'm just so thankful. The book is The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. And we will link to this on smartpeoplepodcast.com. 
I would like to leave it with you. Uh, anywhere else that you are, uh, where you would like to guide people or the work that you're doing, uh, now's the chance because I'm sure people are eager to know more. Well, um, one, you should know that I retired from the Zen Hospice Project and started another nonprofit called the Meta Institute, M-E-T-T-A. Mm-hmm. And that really is about teaching people uh, how to um, mindfully and compassionately care for folks who are dying. So there's that work to be done. They can come to our website, um, metainstitute.org, or they can go to the uh, fiveinvitations.com. And there they can get uh, information not only about my schedule and what I'm doing, but also there's a lot of great stuff there, free downloads about living more fully, about caring for friends and family, about working with grief. Um, and um, so I would like to you know, encourage people to go to that website and uh, see what we have to offer. And that's the fiveinvitations.com, correct? Yeah, five, 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 fiveinvitations.com. That's it. Fantastic. And we will link to that as well. And I can't wait to go check those out for myself. So again, Frank, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Hey, Chris, thank you. And I really thank you for everything you're doing. Actually, the podcast is brilliant. And I really appreciate you having the courage to have this particular conversation. I think the world needs it right now. And um, I'm really grateful to you for engaging me in it. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was it was a blast. Everything I hope for more. Uh, Your work is incredible. And this Will not be the last time we talk. Uh, I promise you that. Hey, Chris, thanks again. It's right. great that you did this. Yeah, Take thank you. Care. Talk soon. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Frank Ostaseski. His book, The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase it through Amazon, please make sure to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. It's an easy way to support the show that comes to no extra cost to you. And if you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave a rating and review over there. We would greatly appreciate that. Make sure you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to stay up to date on all things Smart People Podcast. You can sign up for the newsletter. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Stay tuned as we've got some awesome interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode. Next episode.